0: hi
1: laura hi nice to see you it's great to be here it's good to see you too
0: great uh today my guest is laura albert she's a professor and is the David H. Gustafsson Department Chair of Industrial and Systems Engineering at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her research focuses on discrete optimization with application to Homeland Security, Emergency Response, and Cybersecurity. She has authored or co-authored more than 70 publications in archival journals and referred proceedings. She has been awarded many honors for her research. You can find a list in her Wikipedia page, a long list. <laughs> uh, She's a department editor for IISC Transaction and is on or has been on six other journal editorial boards. Laura has served on the INFORMS board as the Vice President for Marketing, Communication, and Outreach, and served as the Assistant Dean for Graduate Affairs in the College of Engineering at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Laura is, of course, the author of the famous blog, Punk Rock Operations Research. Well, Laura. I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you so much for accepting the invitation. It's such an honor. How are you?
1: I'm good. And it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, excellent. Uh so let's start. You're from Illinois.
1: I am. I grew up in the suburbs outside of Chicago, so I don't live too far away right now. Um it's a great place to be raised, and I'm a proud Chicagoan, and I still follow a lot of the Chicago sports teams.
0: Mm, so I suspect you are a big fan of Chicago Bulls.
1: Absolutely. I feel like I was a bit spoiled to grow up with Michael Jordan. I don't actually remember basketball before Michael Jordan. <laughs> and um, having the six championships in my youth was pretty special. I've been, a, it's been hard to be an NBA fan after that, but I'm a big fan of the Milwaukee Bucks. Mm-hmm. They sort of won me over these past few years, and it was really exciting to see them win the championship just recently. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yanis uh, did amazing, and they, they, they won recently. Uh, I'm, I'm actually a Chicago Bulls fan too. Uh, I, you know, growing up also in the 80s and 90s. I remember I was, when I was visiting the U.S. for the first time in about 1993, uh, I was in a relative's house watching the, the final match in, against uh, the Phoenix Suns. And uh, I clearly remember when John Paxson hit that clutch winning shot and uh, the Bulls won. It was amazing. Uh, so, uh, tell me about your family background.
1: Oh, sure. So I I was raised by two parents. They both actually have a bit of a scientific background. Um, My dad has a degree in biology. My mom is had a degree in medical technology, and I have two siblings, a sister and a brother. I'm the first person to get a PhD in the family. Um, And my mom, um, she didn't work in medical technology when I was growing up. She actually got a job at the School library, and but she went back to, to school to pursue her dream of being a teacher. So, so she became a junior high science teacher um, when I was in high school, is when she got her first job in that area. And um, it was an, she was inspiring. I mean, she really you know wanted to work, but she also wanted to do something that was refi- really fulfilling for her. And uh, it definitely left an impression on me growing up, just seeing her work so hard for what she wanted, um, and my dad support her.
0: That is exactly what I was going to ask because when I was uh, growing up I was around 8 It's when my mom started doing her PhD. She started very late uh, due to family reasons and uh that is it's it when you're a kid and you see your mom you know studying and preparing for exams it it's it's funny in a way. Did you have the same impression?
1: Yeah, I mean we lo- we loved it as kids when my mom would have her evening classes and then we have spaghetti night and you know, it would always be a little bit special. Um, She's still a great and devoted mom. And, um, you know, I could see that a lot of the other mothers weren't able to kind of to do all that. And, um, but, you know, she was special in the way that she she made time for all that and was able to to find balance.
0: Wow. And uh, your father also uh, influenced you in, in like in being curious and so on, you were telling me the other day, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. I get his sense of curiosity. He's insanely curious. And so we'd often talk about things that he had read, things from books about science that he had read about, um, the latest scientific discoveries in the newspaper. It's uh, really interesting. And um, I thought he was kind of a nerd when I was a kid. And I was like, oh, dad's talking about science again. But I will tell you the nut didn't fall very far from the tree, and now it is I who gets excited about scientific yeah. discoveries and reads a lot of uh, nonfiction books. Um, and in that, it was, it's just been interesting how much, you know, his commitment to lifelong learning and on his own, mostly, uh, is something that, that, you know, I feel very strongly about for me.
0: Yeah, I think growing up in in such an interesting environment also helps you develop in general knowledge, as you said, not only about not only about science, but also about other topics and you know literature and stuff like that. And it, it's it's I think it's really good for our background. Um, so, what are the best memories from your childhood?
1: Oh, there's a lot of memories from my childhood. I'll <laughs> give you a couple. I always had my head in a book. I mean, really always. And I so when I think back about to memories. It's always about, you know, what books I was reading and mostly, you know, just fiction books, but I would always pack one with me. So if I ever got bored, I could read. And my mom was always amazed at how many books I could finish in a given week. Um, so that that's definitely a memory. And I still like reading. Mm-hmm. I was uh, also very close to extended family members, especially my grandparents. And so I have a lot of memories um, of that. My dad's parents were immigrants and oh. um only my grandmother was still alive. She's an immigrant from Scotland and we were the only family in the neighborhood. And so uh, she lived another 30 years past my grandfather and we'd have to go visit her every week and do things to help take care of her. But then we also grew really, really close. Mm-hmm. I'd listen to her stories all the time. And she taught me how to make apple pie and scones and shortbread. And, um, but I have a lot of really great memories of just being together and having that time together.
0: Great uh was she from Scotland?
1: Yeah, she was from uh outside of uh let's see Glasgow, Scotland mm-hmm. and she came over when she was 19.
0: Oh, okay. She came
1: to America for, you know, a better life. They just kind of needed some money and uh her father had just died at that time mm-hmm. and um arrived in the US just in time for the Great Depression mm-hmm. and uh but was able to make it in America and she married my grandfather who's a German immigrant and um they had a great life together.
0: I see. Uh, well, moving on to high school, uh you had a pretty busy time.
1: I did. I came into my own and and uh took advantage of my many other interests in addition to reading, which I still did a lot of reading. Um but I took advantage of a lot of different activities, um scholastic bowl, science bowl, marching band, as well as sports. Um so I played volleyball, ran cross country and played badminton. Um so it was very very active learned a lot about time management and it just was a pretty fulfilling and good time in my life where you know I got to be more independent and and you know really explore what interested me and the bar is pretty low in high school at least where I went to school that you could just easily try new things and wow. uh it was good.
0: Wow. Uh you you were mentioning uh that you were playing in a marching band. What instrument did you play?
1: I played the trumpet, which was, you know, interesting because <laughs> I was so, so painfully shy at the time, and I played this loud brass instrument, um, but it suited me pretty well. And, and I liked marching band that in addition to the music, there's formations, there's a performance aspect to it,
0: Why? Right. Yeah. and
1: it just really engages the mind in so many different ways, as well as the body to, to, do, the, um, to do the performances. And yeah. for me, I mean, that was like the best way to have band.
0: Yeah, y- you should be all in sync not only, you know, everybody playing uh, correctly in tune, but also you have to march and do all those moves and and perform, as Mm -hmm. you said. Uh, It it should have been uh, difficult, but at the same time, I I assume you you really had fun, because once you get the knack of it, I think it's, uh, you learn to enjoy the moment. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, You mentioned that you play so many sports. Uh, Did you play in any tournaments uh, on you know, like state level or regional level in, in one of those sports?
1: Yeah, I mean, I took all the athletics seriously, but badminton is where I really was able to shine. I just really took a liking to it. I never had really been exposed to it. I played the top spot in my high school for three years, both singles and doubles. And it was just such a great like it just was such a great experience. It was very much a melting pot of <laughs> different students. It was all, many were not the typical students drawn to sports. And, mm-hmm meant somewhere and um it was so there's a little bit more variety in terms of the life experiences on the team as with other sports i played and um i did make the the state tournament three times in high school and uh, yeah i mean i really lived for sports uh even more than in academics in, in high school
0: that's very very impressive i think you even won a scholar athletic award uh because of your dedication yeah. to to all of that
1: exactly so my high school had an award for seniors and it was the scholar athlete award as you as you noted for um for it was really an academic award and being able to make do so well in academics in addition to athletics
0: so you never consider uh trying to be reaching a professional level or something like that or doing a physical education uh, major never never came into your mind
1: No, it never did. And even when I went to college, I knew I just did not want to do collegiate sports, not because I didn't love it. I really liked the idea of it. It just felt like I really wanted to switch to um, academic pursuits and let that very curious part of me explore the things that I wanted to explore. And I knew going to college that there would always be time for athletics just for fun and yeah and it could be really fulfilling. So I knew it would be still be part of my life. Mhm.
0: At the same time more or less is when you discover your math ability somehow.
1: Yeah, in high school I I finally accepted it. I I could tell all along from elementary school that math came really easy to me and it wasn't always taught very well in school at that time in the United States. And so mm-hmm. um unfortunately like you know your natural abilities Kind of meant a lot and I'm glad that that's changed in the U.S. They do a much better job of sort of bringing everybody up to speed. Um, so in high school though, you know, there were a lot of really smart people in high school and, and I felt like I was good but not great. And at one point there was a test, I don't know what it was called, but it was kind of a kind of standardized test that you could take for fun and, and I did that um, a few times in, in high school. In my junior and senior year, I think I finished, I finished really well. I got very high scores both years and finished like maybe second in the school. And it was quite a shock to me to be that <laughs> far of an outlier. Um, and it was, it was confidence building for sure. Um,
0: yeah, I, I had a similar experience when there was a a, a test uh, involving chess. And I remember I did the second best scoring in the school, and uh, I, I didn't. I had no idea. I, I I had this slight ability to play chess. Of course, I never reached a very high level, but I could compete uh, against other schools and, and win a couple of uh, tournaments. Uh, not only as an individual player, but as a team. Uh, so it, it it's. I think I think I can relate more or less to what you're saying. But then there is a a thing called jets. That's that's very special in your life, and I would like very much to hear about that.
1: Yeah, I I look back in my career, and I'm a full professor in engineering, and I wonder how I got to this point, because I had all these opportunities in life to not get to this point, and it seemed like I went down all of those paths to, like, not bring me here. Um, And I think about what were, like, these important milestones that really gave me the confidence or the opportunity to go to the next level. And one was JETS, which stands for Junior Engineering Technical Society. And it's just, it's kind of like a big science competition for high schools. And my high school was starting one. And they asked me to compete for the team. And um, I could participate in two subjects. And they asked me to participate in physics and chemistry. And I said yes. And so I spent like my entire winter break, my senior year, studying physics and chemistry to do well in these tests. And um, so then I participated in just our first meet. I ended up getting like second in chemistry. Um, And that was pretty good. And then we went on to the regional meet. We didn't go any further than that. But it was a really nice experience, mainly because the teachers starting the club really put their confidence in me that they knew that I could do it. There would only be like one or two people on the team participating in the subjects. And so they singled me out as like the one. And that was just incredibly confidence building because when I thought of a scientist when I was a kid, I did not think of somebody who looked like me. Um, I thought of all the stereotypes, of course, mm-hmm. and sure. uh, I work hard to change those now. Um, but that, it was a great, great experience. Uh, well, one of the memories that really stands out is this activity they gave us based on uh, uh, engineering. and. It was on based on environmental engineering because they had to grade this and score all the tests when we took them, but to determine who was the winner. And that took a little bit of a time of time. So they gave us this group activity on environmental engineering, and it was like very much an applied problem that we needed to, to think through and, and draw from different fields. And and I remember um, not knowing how to solve any of it of course and not everybody was like helping me out on the team but it was just like the problem was so interesting i'm like wow engineers do really cool things and i remember um, when i had to do an interview for one of my college applications i had already mentioned that i was getting an interest in in engineering but when i applied to college i applied as a history major so maybe that's a a source of another discussion
0: wow Maybe because you have so many abilities, uh, it was really hard to find a career. I, I I think of people that they have no idea what to do because they feel they're not good in anything. I think you had, in your case, it was quite the opposite. I think you you kind of felt because you 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 went on building your confidence, especially through high school, that it come it came to a point that you could basically go to arts, sciences, you know, and and engineering. You were you had this uh, multitasking. Uh, profile, if you will. So, Laura, you were mentioning that uh, you spent the winter break, you know, preparing for the the competition and so on. Do you think you have a competitive nature?
1: (laughs) uh, Yes, I'm competitive, but mostly just with myself. And I wanted to do the best that I could for me to build my own confidence. And I'm still very competitive now. Um, Most of the time, it's when I run races, I always want to set, set my personal best. I can't control... The other runners that are at races sure. but I, I won't always be improving
0: yeah and you were saying that you originally applied for a major in history and but then you changed your mind after the application and you went on and switched to a different degree tell mm-hmm. me more about that
1: i changed my mind so many different times I, you're right i had trouble deciding on what i wanted to do i'm just so curious and there's so much i wanted to learn about and it, it took a while for me to decide so I applied to college as a history major. I liked history, was thinking about a legal career. Even before I started, I was already changing my mind. So when I started as a freshman in college, I had, was already double majoring in physics and history. Then it was physics and the history and philosophy of science. I mixed some philosophy okay. is there. And then after my first year, I just went into engineering, and that's where I've been. Yeah. I still did some history and philosophy of science courses, and I just finished reading a philosophy book last week. So <laughs> not much has changed, but I've definitely found some focus.
0: Yeah, so the transition was actually smooth uh, when switching majors. Uh, and I, I, at that time, you were really confident uh, when you took the decision, right? Uh,
1: you know, no, but oh. I was not confident. <laughs> I was always <laughs> like guessing myself a little bit, um, still kind of deciding, you know, you what i want my career path to be and i recently have been pursuing academic leadership opportunities and i'm my department chair right now so i think there's still a chance to retool a little bit along the way um you know it's funny because when i talk to high school students thinking about coming to engineering here the number one question they ask me is is along the lines of like what if i veer from this really narrow path i'm not going to make it as an engineer and i'm always always very open about how lost i was at the beginning of my academic journey and it turned out okay the path is usually pretty forgiving and it was for me and it, i think it is for a lot of other people yeah
0: that's very nice for you to acknowledge that uh it will certainly inspire many other people um and then you you were uh you know now studying engineering and industrial engineering and you have to at some point learn how to code Uh, That's yet another barrier for so many students, especially industrial engineering students. Uh, And how was it in your case?
1: Well, I started coding on my calculator in high school just because one of my friends knew how to do that and was making games. And I just sort of learned by observing a little bit, but it was very basic. So that was not going to take me far, but it was helpful. And then I took up Uh, class in C, programming in C for in college. And they taught that pretty well. And that was that was helpful. And when I started taking engineering classes, they used MATLAB a lot because it has a lot of built-in functionality. And over time, the courses, those courses would require more and more programming, not just figuring out the commands in MATLAB and running it uh, on the command line. And um, at least at my university, they expected engineers to program. And one of the courses I took early in grad school was just we're all going to program in C++, figure it out. And so I did. And, and now I know C++. And what about um,
0: your classmates and colleagues? Were they really enthusiastic as you were?
1: You know, industrial engineers are typically not as enthusiastic, but in general was a place where there was a lot of computing going on and there was a lot of buy-in because that just like is what you need to do to, to get things done. Um, yeah. So, you know, we, we managed.
0: Right. Uh, And how many women were there in your class?
1: Oh, you know, not nearly enough. I was the only woman in a couple of my courses. So that was not great. They weren't huge courses, but, you know, sometimes I would take some and that would be about 5% in a big, big course. And that was a little discouraging. Uh, The most discouraging thing was the lack of female professors, because if you're really looking out in what you want your career to be and you're looking at these role models and they're there were very few, and of course, what they did was so so important. Uh, but I only had one female uh, professor wow. as an undergraduate student in engineering. So I had a few other female professors and some TAs that you know were women, but um, but just the one as a professor, and definitely left a mark. And I you know I really struggled with you know being ambitious about my career path because I just didn't really really see that.
0: Mm-hmm. But at that point, you were not really interested in following an academic career, uh,
1: right? That's true. I was painfully shy, as I mentioned earlier, and just the thought of even, you know, uh, defending a dissertation was terrifying to me. And teaching in front of a class every semester, you know, no way. But you know, we all can grow and change, and I grew and changed <laughs> and adapted, and now I really enjoy teaching. I like doing interviews and being on camera even, yeah. so um, you never know what can be in store for you.
0: Exactly, exactly, I agree. Uh, you mentioned that there were very few women around. Did you have any sort of a group or even a mailing list or something like that?
1: Definitely, I was involved in the university program Women in Engineering that was run at the college, I went to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and, and, and they were making some efforts to diversify the student body and to make sure we succeeded. And I, and I really liked the women in an engineering group. First of all, there was a, a woman professor that, was, that ran it and she was really fantastic. And they would bring in these in speakers that were usually um, you know, women who had graduated from the, the program. And it, it was so inspiring to hear from them because then I could start to see my path. And, and some of those talks were, um, were very memorable. Um, and then you're right, there was a mailing list, and that uh, is how I ended up getting an internship when I was in college. Um, but there was a job at the, the supercomputing center uh, with SGI. So that was, that formerly so SGI uh, at one point stood for Silicon Graphics, Inc., and they bought the company that made the supercomputers. And mm-hmm. They put this ad in the Women in Engineering mailing list, like no experience necessary, just has to be willing to learn about parallel computing and supercomputing, and uh, and I just decided to apply. I don't I don't know why, in part because like you could just do it on campus during the semester, and I thought like oh wow, I think I can balance that. I'm used to juggling a lot, mm-hmm. and um, it you know the way that they wrote the ad, I don't remember what was in it, but I remember it was very inviting, so oh. I applied.
0: Yeah, that's, yes. uh, that position was actually a bit unusual for an industrial engineer, uh, but yes,
1: yeah, it you... was, and I figured if they didn't have to give me the job, if they didn't want an <laughs> industrial engineer, so, um, but I did end up getting hired as an intern.
0: Right, and what did you learn there? What did you do?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, the best thing was the things I didn't specifically learn about the job. Mm-hmm. What was really cool about the position was I worked closely with these two staff members, mostly the one. Who had a PhD in mechanical engineering and just did a lot of you know hardcore scientific computing and you know his research and then later in his career. And he basically helped all of the scientists and faculty and postdocs and everybody on this you know, this big scientific research enterprise run all of their code on these computers. And Um, So I got to see all of that and learn a little bit about what a PhD does in industry, which is what I really wanted to do because I didn't want to (laughs) go into academia. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm so glad I changed my mind about that. Um, But then I got to see things behind the scenes. And then that was so fascinating just seeing what researchers did. I even met some of the students I knew in my classes who were undergraduate researchers. And then I remember one showing me this work she was doing in graphics. And it was, you know, you needed a lot of computing to do, like, these these very detailed graphics that at the time were very state-of-the-art. Um, and it was just so fascinating to to see all that and see people that looked, you know, like me and like a lot of other people taking, a, taking part in science and engineering research behind the scenes. Uh, I, that really helped me uh, grow my confidence that grad school and a PhD was right for me. But in terms of the job, I had to learn about like parallel computing and they signed me up for some courses and undergraduates typically do not know about these subjects. So I think anybody in the role would have to learn a little bit and, and I, learned about, I learned about that and, um, and had a great time uh, with my internship. And I should say that my boss, uh, KV was like, really fantastic and patient and kind and that made a big difference too. So anybody who mentors students can really make a difference for them
0: right so you were coding in uh shell scripts or any other type of uh or were you writing any other type of programs what did you do basically
1: yeah i did some programming in uh, shell scripts i think it was shell. that's what they were using there just to kind of test things out because they would get questions from people running code like things aren't working or how do i get this done and so a lot of it was these shell scripts that would run all this other code that might be like 90% of it was in Fortran um, at the time. So I would do some shell scripts. And one of the issues that came up with was like one of the uh, CPU, the CPUs had like two nodes on them and one of them went bad at one point. And I guess maybe this should never happen. It should never go bad, but <laughs> they had this, they had a problem with that. And um they wanted me, and so then they'd get complaints from the scientists that there's something wrong with the computers. This was a common complaint, like my code didn't run, there's something wrong with those computers. And so I worked on trying to isolate where the computations were sent. And I used somebody else's Fortran code that basically did a lot of linear algebra, but on a large scale. And so you did all these computations, and then something would go wrong with the node, and then the right numbers wouldn't come back. And if you do that enough, then you could really identify that this is the wrong answer. So we, we'd we run that, we knew what the right answer was, and then the trick was with the shell script is, is forcing it to run on specific nodes one at a time, and then you could iterate through and test everything. Um, but the default setting was that it would not really obey the command, it would sort of override and optimize <laughs> uh, where it would run the code, and so um, I had to kind of figure out how to, to force it to do what we wanted so we could test things out, and that was one of the projects I worked on. Yeah.
0: I assume you learned quite a lot, and by listening to your uh, memories from that period, it seems that the environment uh, and all the experience and the the feeling of belonging to a a place was perhaps equally important as uh, the technical abilities and uh, the jobs that you had to do at at that time. So the combo, if you will really uh, made a difference. And sometimes when you do an internship, you don't find that correct environment, or there is a good environment, but you don't like what you're doing. So I think in your case, it it turned out really well. Uh, But we didn't talk about OR so far. And uh, was it Love at First Sight when you first came across?
1: Um, I would say Love at Second Sight. Ah. (laughs) I I took an OR course as an undergraduate, and it was fine. Um, But the the situation was a little tumultuous with the instructor at that time because they had to switch instructors. So it wasn't like a really great environment to develop this love of OR. But I do vividly remember the explanation of how the simplex algorithm works. And man, that is really cool. (laughs) Uh, But it was love at Second Sight when I later took a design optimization course that you know, did OR, but it was ultimately just learning about a lot of nonlinear optimization and implementing the algorithms of steepest, steepest descent and some other mm-hmm. things that I really developed a love for OR and in particular optimization. I mean, it's just so unbelievably cool. And just to have this problem where you have multiple variables, you wanna change them all at once and you have algorithms that can do it reliably. We weren't, weren't always using algorithms that were guaranteed to find optimality in that course, but it was just really amazing to actually do the programming, put problems in, get solutions that were optimal, and then of course it's fun to do the problems where you don't get the optimal solution and you got to see what goes wrong. And it was just really fun to get like really involved in that level mm-hmm. of kind of the theory, but also like just doing it with programming and seeing and yeah. experiencing.
0: Yeah, I heard similar stories. It seems like when we get infected by the OR you know, virus or uh, something like that, it's, it's hard to get healed and you, you become literally an optimizer and it, that stays in, in you and somehow even affects our everyday life and everyday thinking. Did something happen to you like that?
1: Yes, absolutely. I, I was actually interviewed for a popular science book about how I use OR in my everyday life and I'm always trying to find my shortest path and, um, and I use project management. I guess you find your longest path there because that's your critical path. Yep. And, I, and I try to balance that. And um, even to get my kids out the door in the morning, I'm always trying to figure out what's on the critical path. They're older now, but when they were little, it was really hard to, to just get three kids out of the house to school yeah, in sure. the mornings. And I often, um, what I remember, you know, just to get out of the to the house, you have to give them breakfast. And sometimes you just have to remember to give them a spoon because otherwise they're sort of waiting. To to do that next step. And then so there's just me going around tending to all the, the items on the critical path.
0: Yeah. So after that love at second sight, it's when you decided that you were uh going to do masters in optimization.
1: Yes. And so that's what I did. I stuck around for a master's degree and found a professor to work with on and who studied genetic algorithms. And that seemed right up my alley because at the time, I mean. Artificial intelligence was not a cool term at the time, so people didn't use it. (laughs) It it had some ups and downs, but it was just really cool that you could, you know, solve problems in this way. And it was being used to solve some very, um, very difficult to solve problems, mostly in engineering, you know, design optimization and other topics. And uh, this particular professor really studied how the algorithms worked and how they found the solutions that they did and how we could do that better. Right, so so my master's thesis really studies that type of problem. It was kind of um like kind of made up problems and numerical optimization that represented like these these engineering challenges, but we really studied the question of what if you have a fixed amount of computation time? How would you use that intelligently to solve a problem? And the idea was that based on how the algorithm works, you converge to different parts of the solution at different times and some parts are very easy to, con- to converge to, but if you just naively uh, apply the algorithm, you do the, a lot of computation the whole way through, but that can be very inefficient. Um, and doesn't scale very well to certain applications.
0: Right, and this is again uh, not very typical for someone coming from an industrial engineering background. And that's uh, a bit unusual. And I think your second internship also was a bit unusual. Can you tell oh, me more about yes. that?
1: <laughs> well, I started my master's and it was pretty clear that I really liked research and wanted to pr- do more research and a PhD was right for me, but I didn't want to go into academia yet. So I wanted to get an internship at a company where there are uh, many PhDs working in industry so I would get a sense of what that life would be like. Um, so that was those were my constraints. And I found an internship with uh, the defense contractor SAIC in one of their offices. They did a lot of defense work and it was basically applied electrical engineering and they were developing all this software that would you know apply a lot of electrical engineering principles to imaging that would be like collected by uh, radar or some other uh, signaling technology and they had people from a variety of backgrounds at the company because there was a lot of software involved and it was just a really great opportunity to kind of get to know some of the people with PhDs there. And then I could see who led the software projects. I could see who, you know, did all sorts of different things there. And it really made me convinced that I needed to get a PhD because it might lead to the types of industry jobs that I would find fulfilling.
0: Right. Uh, so you, you started your PhD on September 1st, 2001 on aviation security. And that's the perfect definition of timing.
1: All credit goes to Sheldon Jacobson, my advisor who had been working on that area for years. Just his sense was that that was a really important problem the world just hadn't figured it out yet. He figured it out in about 1996. Um so just a great vision for what are the important research problems we need to address as a community.
0: Right. I know it's a bit of cliche to ask that, but where were you on 9/11?
1: I was actually in my uh, research lab um, and I got there really early that morning. I was a bit of an early riser and got the alert and I just signed up for some like news alerts in my email and I got this unbelievably, unbelievable headline. That was the first news alert I ever got in my email and I'm <laughs> like, clearly this is a spam email that could not have happened. And I went online and I couldn't, you know, all the websites were down, you couldn't um, access that information. and so. we had the radio on and uh i just had to go home and of course then i watched like news coverage all day and that was a little overwhelming but it was a pretty overwhelming time
0: yeah yeah i I also remember uh you know i saw actually the second uh airplane hitting the world trade center live and that was absolutely shocking and horrible and uh yeah i I can only imagine for you guys you know living there and you know it did did that make you feel uh you know really uncomfortable for several weeks months or you quickly recovered from the shock
1: I mean I did recover from the shock I didn't have any personal connections to it but you know the part that didn't recover is I just wanted to do something and make a difference and try to make the world safer and the research was such a great opportunity for that I figured that I would be interested in theory because I was good at math. I was insanely curious. I loved abstract thought. why not? Mm-hmm. and I switched to applied research and sort of I've never looked back yeah but um, I still am really drawn to applications that can really make a difference that kind of bridge theory to application um, to policy often and mm-hmm. the you know the research really kept me going, but you know even at the time it was not obvious to me that operations research was a really great tool for this problem. And that was one thing that I had to learn Mm -hmm. is to kind of see the potential in operations research and in our discipline and its ability to really address some of our biggest challenges.
0: Yeah, sometimes uh, Mm -hmm. we think that something complex is really relevant, but uh, at times when you see the opportunity and you can identify the potential application of a tool and that is uh, not obvious at times, and I think it deserves credit, in a way, because you, you might have to think in a creative fashion. It's not only a, a matter of you know, implementing complex algorithms and all that. You have to see, mm, this is useful in that context. And I think, uh, in, in this case, you and your advisor really uh, accomplished a really uh, important thing. And I would like to hear very much about your PhD research.
1: Oh, sure. So my phd research was driven by some questions that actually were originated before september 11th and because aviation security was secretly in a state of flux prior to september 11th and that there was more advanced screening being done at for some checked bags so just the checked bag so it would not have made a difference in september 11th but the idea was they have a very budget constrained environment and they wanted get the most use out of their limited screening technologies. And when they introduce them, they can only, you know, do the advanced screening for maybe 5% of passengers. And so the questions they had were, you know, basically, how do they do effectively implement risk-based screening in these budget-constrained environments? And so we looked at that a couple of different ways. First, in terms of, you know, how much difference will this make in terms of, you know, just Reducing the risk with uh, with these costs, and then we looked at it in terms of actual devices and assigning people to a subset of devices, so you get a bit of a set covering problem in there. And how can you can you manage that? And then we switched to the dynamic version of the problem, where it's like once we've con, um, committed to these you know screening capacities and different like screening groups, how do you assign people in real time, and is that robust and The results suggested that, A, this can reduce the risk substantially because you target your limited resources on the riskier parts of the system. And in that application, it was very reasonable to assume that most passengers were low risk. Uh, The Federal Aviation Administration... Which is now part of the TSA, the Transportation Security Administration, had been doing some kind of risk assessments. And most people are not risky, and it's pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. And so they were able to help defeat us some of these assumptions for the work, and we got some of these policy insights back. Mm-hmm. And then it looked like you could develop a tool to make assignments to passengers that would lead to them using their devices in kind of responsible ways that wouldn't lead to long waits at the airport. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, right. Uh, and- can we say that uh, the research you developed during your PhD or all these advances in OR, in aviation security, has been put into practice?
1: Yes, I can, and I'm happy to say that, but it took some time. I remember at one point, I thought some of my research was going to be presented to the TSA and it would make a difference, and it seemed like we had these connections, and then it nothing happened, and then nothing happened for a long time. I kept reading about these, like pilot projects the TSA was going to start that sounded like my research, risk-based security, but then it did nothing happened. And then through some luck, Ken Fletcher, who is an OR person, discovered our research and later became the architect of TSA PreCheck. Afterward, we found out that they considered what looks like TSA PreCheck, which is looks a lot like the papers I wrote, and we found out a couple of things. One is my my research papers did help them do the analysis. So they plugged in their numbers and, and did a little bit more with it. But it helped. It provided a framework and the technical justification for something like TSA PreCheck. We also found out they were considering two other alternatives to TSA PreCheck, and they had to choose between the three, and they chose TSA PreCheck. Um, so that was kind of lucky. But you know, if you do good work, and there's a little bit of luck, sometimes you can make a big difference.
0: Yeah, you got to have luck at some point. Yes, yeah, that's 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 how it is. Uh, And you mentioned about your papers and so on. Uh, I usually ask the guests uh, what uh, their first conference and journal papers and how was the experience and in your case, how did it go?
1: Sure, I will talk about my first OR conference. Um, It's not my first conference, but it's very memorable. And I, I went to my first OR conference and having been to conferences before, I was used to sort of standing out as a woman and not always feeling like I really belonged. And I had quite a different experience at my first OR conference, um, in part because the women in OR and MS, Worms, which is one of the fora of Worms, Worm, started a, a lunch just for, for women. And uh, Panar Kachinochak, who's the past president of INFORMS and a professor at Georgia Tech started that, and it was just such an important moment in the conference. I mean, I presented research, but I really remember this lunch, and the lunch was so memorable because I literally and figuratively felt welcome to the table in our community. Mm-hmm. And it's really inspired me so much when I think about it, because I feel obligated to make places where other people feel included and, and valued wherever I go. And and people that look like me need to be welcome to the field but people who don't look like me who've been historically excluded also need to be welcome to to the field and um kind of it's up to all of us to do the welcoming
0: yeah that's brilliant and what about your first journal paper
1: oh I should I should know this more memorably but I do remember the first paper where I that I authored where I was the first author and that was pretty thrilling cuz it was not accepted at the first journal and it was a little bit demoralizing <laughs> Um, but it was the first aviation security paper was accepted in Naval Research Logistics.
0: Which is a really good journal and well mm-hmm. traditional journal. Uh, did you tell your mom or anyone from your family? Because sometimes when you, you get the first paper is <laughs> a big thing or you, you didn't really make a, a big deal out of it.
1: Um, I didn't make a huge deal out of it. I'm sure I told my mom and my mom's proud of me, of course, and my dad, too. but. Uh, but yeah, it was kind of demoralizing that just took so long and then, then I had a, a many other play, papers I quickly followed. But it kind of was a sense of relief when it finally was accepted.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can see that in a way as maybe your first child but uh, our academic child, but then you also had your first child, your first kid during the graduate school. Your first daughter was born.
1: I mm-hmm. did. I have three daughters. My oldest was born when I was a graduate student and I was done with courses at that, that time. And uh, yeah, I mean, she's wonderful. I'm so glad she's part of my life. It was a little crazy to have a child before the PhD, but it was also good too. I mean, I've, I ended up having three daughters all before I went up for tenure. Um, so I've kind of never known another part of, a part of my career where I didn't have young children. And uh, right. I don't know, maybe it's easier that way to not have to make a big change.
0: And your advisor, he was uh, supportive, uh, I believe, right?
1: Yes, he's incredibly supportive. So, many universities, and mine at the time, didn't have a parental leave program. So, he was incredibly supportive. And, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't say enough about that.
0: Yeah, uh, and eventually you graduated and you got your first position in a university. Can you tell me more about that too?
1: Yep, I went straight to a faculty position at Virginia Commonwealth University in the Statistics and Operations Research Department. And uh, that was an exciting time and a great place to start my career. And I made a lot of great connections with uh, my colleagues there and learned how to teach. And I so I did figure out that I needed to go into this academic job and um, I was ready for it when it began.
0: Uh, and- do you have any recollections of the first time you joined the classroom and was there as assistant professor and having the you know, that, uh so many. I don't know how many people were there, but, uh, you know, standing in front of so many people and talking and being in that position, was it uh, smooth or were you nervous?
1: You know, it was pretty smooth. I think like a lot of um, but I was nervous, I was really nervous. <laughs> and I was able to teach a course as a graduate student. My department had a fellowship that you could just teach an entire course. And so I taught an engineering statistics course to 69 students, and uh, that was terrifying. You know, I'd just go in with a sweat every classroom, class that I taught, and my, the students wrote in the evaluations, I should be more confident about my answers and everything. But, you know, I learned and I grew as an, uh, an instructor, and it just got easier each semester I taught.
0: Uh, excellent. Uh- yeah, it's it's good for you to acknowledge that, uh, in, you know, the beginning, it was uh, you, you have that little bit of insecurity, but you thrived and, and it shows that uh, with some, you know, bit of confidence and, you know, thinking straight, you can uh, achieve uh, a really good result in that matter. Because I know some people that, you know, coming that transition from being a PhD student and or even a postdoc, and they, then they start teaching. And they they get excited. They have a position, but still, it makes them feel uneasy or uncomfortable at times. So uh, it's good to hear that uh, in your case was a smooth. Yet you were uh, you know nervous and you know all these things that we can feel during that time.
1: Yeah, we're all a work in progress, and I think it's easy to lose sight of. The fact that we all are going to grow we get this growth mindset for our students we know they can learn but sometimes we forget to, to have that same mindset for ourselves exactly there's really so there's so much professors have to learn in five or six years before they go up to tenure and they will learn a lot and just um to be patient keep working at it and yeah. a lot of things can get ironed out in that time
0: so laura uh you were a single mom with three daughters and yet you are certainly an accomplisher in your professional life and how do you do the magic of time management i know you give a lot of uh, uh talks about that and you have even a presentation available on youtube regarding that yes i do yeah. uh you made some posts on twitter and even your blog but i want to hear uh, uh straight from you now uh how how do you do that it's just unbelievable
1: well i mean i there's a lot that i could say on it but first and foremost i learned a lot in high school and mainly because I wanted to pursue my interests. And I think, you know, living a life of passion is good. And that there's things that you want to make time for, and that makes it all worthwhile. And so that is, I think, one of my core principles is in terms of finding the balance, is that you have to make make time for the fun stuff. And, of course, the things you have to do need to be worked in there. But, you know, sometimes the fun stuff makes it all worthwhile. Um, yeah, so in terms of balance with the kids and the tenure track, I mean, it is a little tricky. I mean, Little's Law helps, you knowing some queuing theory in terms of making progress on those papers that need to go through. And you have to juggle a lot of papers at various stages of the publication process to have, you know, a, a great uh, dossier when you go for tenure. Um, but a lot of it is just figuring out how I work well, getting things done in short bursts is very good. And I keep reading papers on why that's good. And sometimes if it felt like I just developed that out of necessity with these young children, sometimes you only have half an hour, um, but just being able to kind of chip away at things when you can, but on a regular basis can be really good. Um, in terms of time management, I make a to-do list of every day when I start my day. Um, so that's just part of my morning ritual um, but it starts really before that on a weekly basis on sunday nights i often look at my schedule for the week and i'm i get a sense for what my to, da- to daily to-do list will be but then i look for periods when i can block off some time for research and sometimes i'll actually do that i'll block off my calendar for that so it doesn't get filled with with meetings and other things that can be distracting so i like kind of on a global level i try to get the right mix each week and then I have my daily to-do list and um yeah and, I, and then I just try to uh be mindful of how long it takes to get things done sometimes you have a feedback loop and you realize those things in your to-do list are still there day after day so either I'm not devoting enough time or they just take took longer than I thought and I'll adjust time later
0: yeah well that's yeah, that's very impressive uh Thank you, you you mentioned that you, you you have to juggle quite a lot so let me ask you this uh nerd question How on. do you handle hard and soft constraints?
1: That's a gr- that's a really good question. Um yeah, so my hard constraints is I try to get 8 hours of sleep every night and get some exercise every day. Sometimes I I make time for more than that. Um so that's just what I need to do for me as a human being. And then <laughs> Then you work around your other hard constraints like teaching and and whatnot my children's schedule so i have a lot of hard constraints because my my children's schedule really dictates a lot and then there's the soft constraints which is usually when i get the exercise so i would say what's missing from your question is what are your variables
0: oh yeah
1: um, you know big a big aspect of my time management is not what to do it's when i do it oh and a lot of times i hear people ask me about time management and they think the right question is, do I say yes to this or do I say no to this? And I, my answer is like, it's way more complicated than that. But sometimes you have to figure out when you can do it and that affects your answer. And for me, that's totally true. So my, my daughters have Irish dance practice, I go running that hour and that's when I get my exercise in. So I have to be very flexible and have those soft constraints in there. Um, to make it all work. And having a flexible mindset is, I think, critical.
0: Yeah. So you literally optimize your schedule and maybe you can profit from your our abilities to do that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> That's true. But, I, you know, I secretly hope people have a little bit more freedom in setting their schedules than sometimes I do. But if I'm willing to be flexible, I can find a very uh, high quality solution.
0: Yes. And, you know, after spending uh, many years in Virginia you decided to switch universities and why?
1: For a couple reasons. One is Virginia Commonwealth University is fantastic. I was in a great department with great colleagues, but it was in the liberal uh, arts and colleges, uh, liberal arts and sciences college, and we had limited opportunity to really mentor students. We did start a PhD program while I was there, but I looked forward at what kind of impact I wanted my career to have. it was clear that I needed to be in a college of engineering Mm -hmm. and I wanted to go to only one of the best universities. (laughs) So uh, I interviewed at several places and decided to come to the university of Wisconsin, Madison, which is, you know, close to where I grew up and close to family. So that was a big selling point.
0: I see. We have to talk about the famous punk rock or blog. Um uh, tell me everything about it and, uh, and first tell me about the name. Why? Sure,
1: I will. <laughs> so I started it my first year as a faculty member and was in the small program, Stats and OR program. There weren't a lot of students in it, but when they discovered OR, they liked it. So I felt like there was a story to tell there. And blogging was cool at the time. It's no longer cool, but whatever. I just love it. I think blogging is great because you can introduce so much content, but I started this blog really thinking like, oh, students will discover operations research as a major and this will be great. So um, it didn't really work that way. We can talk about that later, but it's been, it's been very successful. And when I started the blog, I had to come up with a name. And I, my favorite blog was Mike Trick's Operations Research blog and best blog. But I felt like the name was a little lacking. And I've given Mike a hard time about this, <laughs> but um, I just ha- had a different vision for my blog my blog's name. Maybe our visions for the actual blog are, are similar. Um, but I I tried out a bunch of different names and I really like punk rock operations research. I uh, Just something that really stuck. Once I, I thought of it, I knew that that was the the blog's name. Right. And I like punk. I like a lot of other music too. But I like the, the DIY aspect of punk. It was very do-it-yourself. It's break the rules. It's you know, envision things being done in ways they haven't been done before. Some punk is really looks at society and is really critical of society. Um, Some music I like by The Clash and some other artists really, you know, envision a better world and it just seemed to really fit. Maybe it's not perfect, but it fit enough for me. And I'm I have I have no regrets.
0: Yeah, I must confess that I'm more into classic rock or prog rock, even hard rock. But punk rock is really okay for this. I mean, you, you nailed it. I can say that it's uh, Thank you. it really reflects the, the idea and so on. So uh, it, it's a very good name. And uh, what were the main benefits you got from your blog? And were I mean, uh, do you get recognized uh, in person when you know going to conferences because of the blog?
1: Yes, I do. It's really weird, but <laughs> I I will say that I'm often asked about this. Like, what a colossal waste of time to start a blog and write a blog on the tenure track. You have so many other things to do, but you know, as I said, you have to live a life full of passion. You have to have fun on the tenure track. Otherwise it's just a grind. I mean, and you have to be doing the job after tenure. So you have to make it sustainable for the long term. So for me, I mean, the benefit I mean, that's part of the benefit. Um, I also think the benefit was something that I wanted to do. I really liked the idea of writing and as somebody that was, that's quite introverted. I'm, I'm less introverted than I used to be, but blogging is a great medium for an introvert to get your message out to the world. And it really felt important to me, especially with the type of applied research that I did when I was a PhD student to, to tell our story to the greater audience and whoever's out there listening, which is usually not like the entire general public, but it's people that are interested in kind of science and math in general. And, you know, we've got a great story to tell, and operations research shouldn't be such a well-kept secret.
0: Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, Do you think... uh, uh, I'll I'll get back to that later uh, about being a secret society. But, um, you know, you've been maintaining this blog for about 15 years or so, right? And uh, you, you once told me that the more I post, the more I think of more things to post. Is it how it works?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like once you start being creative and blogging about something, you just, it's really easy to stay in that creative mode and to come up with more ideas. And it's really good for my my brain to just think about things to post because sometimes I don't get to go in all these different directions in my research, but I can, I can do that with the blog. Um, and so that's been good for me. It's made me a better writer as well just being able to explain something that's really not obvious not and yet. really cool about operations research to to other people in other disciplines i think that's been really helpful in terms of just you know improving my ability to teach
0: yeah and it's also and, you know, yeah sorry go ahead
1: Oh yeah, and then you asked earlier about some of the other benefits. I found that some of my colleagues use my posts in their classrooms. People get to know me. I've discovered students that have chosen to switch majors and become into operations research or or pursue it in their PhD. Those are always really great messages. I'm glad when anybody tells me that, and it, it's really an honor.
0: Yeah, right, and it's it's really informative, even for us that uh, belong to the field. The other day, my co-advisor, my former PhD co-advisor Eduardo Shaw, he shared. One of your posts, uh, it was about uh, a paper from the 60s on the art of mathematical modeling. It was so ahead of its time. It 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 brings uh, a very nice discussion, even the philosophical aspect of modeling and so on. Mm. And it's great. So it serves not only for those that are not from the field, but also, of course, those that are uh, operations researchers. So, so I, I can you know confirm that it's it's really a really good initiative and it's, it's wonderful. And I would like to congratulate you. For that uh, project, that is just amazing. Thank you. Right? Uh, can you please tell me now about your research work on emergency medical services, cybersecurity, and maybe other society-relevant problems that you you that's like you like to refer to it?
1: Yeah. So uh, I've started branching out into different application areas on the tenure track. So in my first year, I was partnered with um, fire and emergency medical department with a. They had some problems to solve. They didn't know how to get there. Their medical director, who's an emergency medical physician, was really ambitious with what they could do in a budget constrained environment with interdependent decisions. and. Um, the the chief there was really willing to think outside the box and provided some ideas, like maybe we should have these non-transport vehicles, which are basically SUVs that can respond to patients and then they can be freed up more easily. And so it it was really a great environment where they had some needs for me to analyze their data and point things out, but then also to think about how they could design a better system. And so that really started a, a long partnership. i partnered with other agencies since then but just trying to re-envision what emergency medical services can do. I've written many papers in the area. My most recent one was accepted for publication this past month, Um, but really trying to the technical basis of kind of designing more, uh, you know, better systems. A lot of my research has focused on making more patient-centered decisions and bringing that kind of healthcare ideas into the, into emergency response and emergency medical services because they are trying to save lives to make a difference. And when they have all these different vehicles that they can respond to, you can't just evaluate their service in terms of how fast they got there. You actually have to look at that quality of the care. And so my research has tr- tried to delve into those topics in and di- from, from a few different angles over the past 15 years or so. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I try to envision <laughs> applying operations research in other areas. So I started working in cybersecurity about seven years ago, and it was really a, got introduced to uh, somebody that I knew that was using data analytics in cybersecurity from like a risk management point of view, dealing with supply chain security. Because you have to protect your the system and the infrastructure, but then you have to also protect the supply chain that can introduce all these other risks to the system and just coming up with more structured ways to look at it. And OR is really, really great at that. And it's still a fascinating problem I'm doing a lot of research in that area right now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of the policies at the time um, were just really overly simplistic and they really didn't do anything to reduce the risk. And so that's why we were trying to introduce better ways of studying the issue um, and now I'm looking at like, how do you like, get the right timing for the decision and how do you roll out security measures instead of just viewing them as a binary decision. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't have the answers yet. I've got my work cut out for me, but it, it's really fun to work on.
0: Yeah, that, that, that's the important thing. I mean, it's not only fascinating, as you said, but also you're, you're, you're enjoying what you're doing and that, that message is really uh, encouraging and motivating. Uh, you, we were mentioning just now that OR can be seen somewhat as a secret society. Uh, do you think that after so many years of a massive amount of research in our field, uh, OR is still an obscure subject uh, for the society in general, worldwide?
1: Yeah, sadly, I think it is a bit of a well Cup secret. I'm doing my best to change that. We have so many great stories to tell. And if you look at what really matters for decision-making in the world, data analytics, but that's not really nearly enough. You need a lot of math, and you look at the type of interdependent decisions that need to be made to really you know, run large enterprises. We also use a lot of math models. Math models are really critical for understanding our world. I keep seeing all these forecasting models for COVID, and it's based on the probability models that I teach in my my course that I teach every year. In fact, we, we've we introduced um, epidemiological models like the SIR models, and you know, they're really critical for understanding our world, right? We're actually seeing them in the newspaper every day. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, you know, I think that we've got, we have really important tools that really make a difference. And if you look at what we've done in healthcare, which has really grown across, you know, during my career, that we have tools, they're really useful, they really work super well in the healthcare settings. So you can actually apply them and you know we're not limited to just healthcare, but you know there's going to be other applications that that we also can can grow into, and you can see that happening with transportation and, and the sharing econ- economy and all the next generation transportation decisions. That you know our our tools are really useful.
0: Yeah, perhaps we have to improve our marketing skills. On that matter, uh, do you see yourself as an influencer because you have more than 5,000 <laughs> followers on Twitter, and that is. Uh... Quite a, quite a lot for someone from OR.
1: <laughs> well, if you're going to label me as an operations, researcher, for operations research influencer, I'll take it. Uh, I You know, I just think we all need to do our part so that OR isn't such a well-kept secret. I'm happy to do it. It's really nice. I really like talking to the general public about math and math modeling and data analytics and moving from data to decisions people get really excited when they hear about what we can do. So I think there's a lot more we could do if we wanted to. When I was at INFORMS, I was the vice president of marketing, communication and outreach, and I helped lead some of the advocacy efforts, which is about collaborating with government policymakers and turning our models and our insights into policy to to save lives and to make a difference. And that was really fulfilling. And it was really fun to talk to Congressional staff and Senate staff about some of the problems they were dealing with and some of the insights that you could get from our models. So Mm -hmm. there's really a wide scope of influence that we can have um, to to help solve real problems.
0: Right. Uh, We have to talk about women in OR, of course. Mm -hmm. You were a role model, of course. Uh, We were just discussing that uh, you were an inspiration for marketing and, you know, other stuff uh, regarding uh, social networks and your the fact that you were an influencer in our field, but uh, how do you see the situation uh, in terms of, uh, you know, gender and the amount of women uh, that are working in our field? i I've, the the numbers, you know, the figures are not really encouraging. I think there's still a huge gap uh, when you see the, 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 the number of men and, and then the number of women in our field. So what are your thoughts on this?
1: Yeah. We've come a long way, but we have a long way to go. And, and when, I, when I talk about the long way to go, of course, you know, we can make improvements for women, but it's also, you know, diversity comes in a lot of different flavors. There's other dimensions, you know, race, ability, status, culture. Those are just a few of them. We have to make our field more welcoming. Whenever we've been able to do that, we've been able to you know, broaden who participates in operations research, the field gets so much better. We start studying new applications. We start look, using, looking at the old applications and our old tools, but in better ways where we're at asking different questions that really enrich what we're doing. It's just so good for the health of the field. Um, so, you know, there's a lot to do. I, I spend a lot of time just trying to, to welcome everybody in. And, you know, when we do that, we ourselves are going to change. It's not just a one way street of assimilation. And I, I mentioned the impact that that can have on the field. Um, but I've, you know, revisited how to train students in, in certain ways, how I teach, and I'm constantly reassessing and improving and doing better. I try to take advantage of any any advantage I can to reach out to people younger in the field to mentor them. And that goes from high school students or, that are considering uh, OR potentially. And if they go in, into another engineering field, that's great. I count that as a win. And then make sure that they stay and succeed on to graduate students, which is a passion of mine, and then also early career um, faculty members in operations research. So I actually ran a, a mentoring program uh-huh. this past year. I think it's so critical. And I do think that you know women, especially women that are younger in the field with young children, this is a really tough time uh, for our field. And there are many of those women are departing because we just don't have enough societal supports in place to have a career any any type of career really during the pandemic without reliable childcare. so uh we have a lot of work to do i'm i remain optimistic about the future the yeah. pandemic has made uncovered some of the challenges that that we have and they yeah. were there all along but it's made us you know made me realize that that we still have to work quite hard at, at what we do
0: yeah um you know i i had the students and she's very good in math And uh, she's now about to start an engineering course. And she told me uh, that uh, her family uh, was always discouraging her to to do engineering or physics or math or any career related to science. They are telling her to do uh, law or something like that. They say, no, engineering, it's not a field for women. I, I found that really inappropriate. So what is the role of family in this context? What are your views on this?
1: Yeah, it can be really hard. And I've talked to graduate students that have had um, various levels of support and lack of support. And it's important for us in the community to help provide other levels of support if they can't rely on the family. Uh, my parents always were very really supportive. Um, they were really only supportive of me going to graduate school because I got a stipend and, and uh, paid for it myself. So that's that's a piece of it too. Um, for a lot of family members is uh, the cost of higher education and... Mm-hmm. And looking at that. Um, but it, it is tricky if there's not a lot of support at home. And I think that's why these, these organizations that, um, from informs to things at our university can really help fill in some of the gaps and provide role models and provide a path. Because sometimes you know they need to find that path. And once they find it, it's easier to stay on it.
0: Yeah. Uh, finally, uh, there's this paper that recently came out and it was published in Service Science. And it's entitled, Who are the Gatekeepers? Uh, an uh, examination of diversity in informs journal editorial boards. Um, the, the numbers are really, uh, you know, not favorable to women. And also uh, the authors uh, pointed out that uh, a large number of uh, the, di- uh, the members of those boards belong to a very limited number of universities. I know you already made some 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 comments in, 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 on social media and so on, but uh, can you can you uh, elaborate more on this, please?
1: Sure, And then the papers by uh, Margaret Brando at Stanford. Am I correct? I think so. Uh, yeah. I, I have to double check, but I think yes. Okay, I think yes too. Yeah, I, you know, we, we have to be very mindful of this because we're not going to just by default pick very diverse sets of people to be gatekeepers and it and it's really critical for journals because that's like the currency when you go up for tenure is pu- paper publications and you know really when you're looking at papers getting published you, you know you have to think about is this research valuable you know and who gets to decide you know what good research is and what do they look like right so we have to to think about those things and we have all sorts of implicit biases and social networks that aren't like fully connected like they should be. And, and so and we're human, so we're not going to maybe get it right all the time. Um, so we have to be very mindful of this. And I, I'm really glad that, um, you know, Margaret did that work to shine a light on the problem. And maybe now that opens up avenues to fix it. Um, I try to do my part, and I'm not perfect. And I've got a ways to go. But I've been very mindful of, of those issues. Um, in My editorial boards, I'm a department editor for I, I see transactions, so that's the only one where I get to pick associate editors and I've, I've had six over the years and three have been women and two are underrepresented two have been underrepresented minorities and so I've been trying to do my part to make sure there's a diversity of viewpoints on those journals but you know really they're they're highly qualified and I think that's worth pointing out too and it you know to really publish the best research you have to have really great researchers and um if they're a little bit different, that's great, because <laughs> they have different strengths and, and they, they look for different things in papers, and then you can make sure that you're consistently publishing high quality work.
0: Absolutely, I totally agree with you. Well, uh, Laura, uh, I, I don't know how to thank you, uh, not only for this uh, wonderful time I just had uh, talking to you, but also for everything you've done for our field, trying to put this in the map and having this resilience, uh, you know, to, to keep on working, also uh, the inspiration that you are for women, you know. So thank you, thank you very much.
1: You're welcome, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, so uh, let's hope uh, all this uh, pandemic crisis uh, gets, you know, uh, solved pretty soon and uh, we're able to maybe one day meet in person. I'd like that. (laughs) Right, all the best. Bye, ciao.